Good morning, everybody. Good to see you on uh, this beautiful day. The weather keeps on surprising me. Uh, when I think it's going to be good, it's not that hot. And when I think it's not that hot, it's actually pretty nice. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, maybe for the first time, or maybe even a couple of times, still wonderful to have you with us in the fellowship this morning. And we do hope that you uh, enjoy uh, the service uh, with us. Uh, today, we are starting a new 100-part series. <laughs> okay, we hope not. We hope not. But I know where these things tend to go. So uh, today we're starting a new series entitled Image, uh, Be uh, the You that God uh, Wants You to Be. Uh, but before we do, let's go to God in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, thank you so much that we can meet this morning. Thank you that we uh, get to sing to you, that we get to do it together and that you have allowed us the blessing of this new day, that you've allowed us to be here, to be able to breathe in and out, to experience life, to experience you, the fellowship, uh, and the beauty of creation. And I pray this morning as we start a journey on uh, getting to know ourselves better and your intent for us in this beautiful world, that you'll lead us, that you'll open our minds, that you'll help us to uh, be able to grasp uh, your truths, that we'll be able to grasp insight uh, about ourselves and each other. Uh, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so we are on a journey where we're starting today for a couple of weeks. Image, icon, um, is the Greek word for image in the Old Testament. I won't go into too much complexity around that. But who is the you that God wants you to be? In other words, that there is a you that you might want you to be. There's a you that other people might want you to be. But who is the you, uh, who is the you that God wants you to be? Okay, that is, and you as the individual, that is what we are going after. Now, historically, we have learned that in Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2, that God has created a beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden as we know it. And in the middle of this beautiful garden, he set man as his image, his icon, his, uh, the uh, Hebrew word is actually referring almost to, or like a statue, an, an idol, okay? Tselem, I think is the Hebrew. So where that image is there to represent him. And obviously in generations that follow, we see it in pagan religions as well as there would be an image that represents the deity. Uh, but that image of the deity of Yahweh is us. He has created us in his image. We are, Adam and Eve, mankind, are to be his representatives, his hands, his feet, his ears, his mouth. And Adam and Eve, humanity, were to create flourishing communities that would bask in his splendor, his beauty, his majesty, as they continue to spread his image as they continue to reflect Yahweh into the world at large. We obviously know that early on that journey goes wrong, and God restarts, if you may, the journey with Abraham and Sarah and the Israelites and the Jewish people to be his people, to be his image. And he gives them what is called the Torah. That is the first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
He gives it to them, to his people, if he may, as a code of conduct. Okay. In other words, as my community, as my image, what should you look like? What should you behave like? How will you reflect me and my purposes and who I am and my very essence and being into the world at large? Therefore, I give you the Torah. Now, the Torah then has a number of commands and instructions in it. Uh, They are not numbered, but people have counted them through the centuries. And they have found that there is between 611 and 613 instructions in the Torah as to how to be the people of God. The discrepancy on the two are one is when he says, I am the Lord your God. Some people feel like that in itself is a command. (laughs) Okay, just him saying, I am the Lord your God. Man, that's a command. We need to get that. Okay, so that's basically playing around that one that, that causes the discrepancy. But these, as you can imagine, 611 to 13, let's just say 613, that's the most common way people are viewing it, was then uh, interpreted, explained, and taught to the people at large by experts in the law and by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees. So these experts in the law were people who diligently, every day, they studied the Torah. They studied the 613 commands Most of them were also scribes, so they were the guys that copied the manuscripts, one after the other, after the other, other, they brought it to us today. Now, the context of, we said all of that to get to this passage in Matthew 22 to understand its context, then says in Matthew 22, an expert in the law, one of those guys, an expert in the 613 laws, Tested Jesus with this question. So, remember backdrop? Creates a beautiful garden. Sets man into it as his image. They are to expand and reflect him. These 613 commands are a code of conduct that will help the people around him to see what God values, who he is, and how he wants to make this world. An expert of the Lord tests Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in The Torah. Our English Bible says law. It's translated from Torah. Which is, so of the 613, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? That's a tricky question. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second, interesting, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the Torah and the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, the book of the Twelve, hang on these two commandments. He asks for one, Jesus gives them two, and he says they're alike. He says out of the 613, well, maybe that's even 611, 613, two, let it give them two. These are the two most important. Love Yahweh, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And the second equally important to that is love your neighbor as yourself. Then we know later on in John chapter 13, he expands on, expands on not expands, but expands on the neighborly part by saying, a new command I give you to his disciples 
Love one another as I have loved you. So not just as your neighbor, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another by this, by you doing this, by you living this God in life, by you imaging me in that way, everyone will know that you are my followers, my disciples, if you love one another. So, what does it take to build a garden like an Edenic, if you may, community? A community that is striving for a healthy relationship with God and a healthy relationship with their neighbors, a.k.a. friends, families, colleagues, an actual neighbor, whether good or bad. Now, I am by no means a relationship expert. Someone, I'll keep him anonymous, he's got lots of tattoos, said to me the other day, <clears throat> everywhere, said to me the other day that I'm actually relationship, uh, relationally awkward. I'm like, oh, tattoo man, how can you say that? I'm by no means an expert in the relationships. But what I have noticed over the years, the little that I do know, is that one of the key predictors in being fruitful in your relationship with both God and others is self-awareness. This is a horrible two words that influences everything. Self-awareness. Now, as I have been thinking and praying and preparing this message for, I don't know, months, okay? And as I've been talking to people about this, just self-awareness, me just giving the definition, we can actually say, now let's take the Lord's Supper. (laughs) So you're ready for the definition? I will tell you, Greg. And I will bring it from the back there. Self-awareness is self-knowledge that leads to an awareness of how my personality affects others. And that includes you. This is not just just for adults. Okay? Teenagers, the old agers, self-knowledge, self-knowledge, having a knowledge, I know myself, self-knowledge, I have enough knowledge of who I am that it makes me aware, it leads to an awareness of how my personality, who I am, affects those around me. Because who I am, no matter who I am, I have an effect on the people around me. Whether colleagues, neighbors, friends, family, parents, kids, husband, wife, I affect them in some way. And self-awareness is a self-knowledge that leads to an awareness of how my personality affects others. Now, let's get to an even worse definition. Shall we just take the communion and go? What is my personality? mine. Ours. 
my habitual and predictable ways of thinking, acting, feeling, and doing. <laughs> Who am I? My personality. It's my predictable and habitual ways of thinking, feeling, acting, and doing. For me, for who I am as the one and only Van der Force, maybe there's another Van der Force, but for this Van der Force, I have an habitual and predictable way of thinking about things, feeling about certain things, acting in certain ways, doing certain things. That is my personality. So, if we put the two together, self-awareness then is knowing how my habitual, predictable ways of thinking, acting, feeling, and doing serve me or defeat me in my relationship with God and others. And that includes the teenagers. Yes, David includes you. Do you know? Amen. <laughs> okay. Knowing how my, I've got an habitual and predictable, no matter who I am, way of thinking, feeling, and doing, knowing how that serves me or defeats me, does one or the other, in my relationships with both God and others. Now, knowing this, knowing how important now that we know it, and now you know it. Now it's done. I mean, now, now there's no excuse because I know it. <laughs> now that I know it, thank you for that amen at the back there. Now that I know it, a good question to ask might be, how do I, now that I know this, how do I monitor and self-regulate the way that I think, act, feel, and do in the moment? Real time. So I'm with you in conversation. I am with my spouse. I'm with my child. I'm with my parent. I'm with my neighbor. I'm with my boss. I know I'm self-aware. I have an awareness of how my habitual, predictable ways of thinking, acting, feeling, and doing can affect others. And so in the moment, how do I regulate? In the moment, thinking, I'm busy doing it. I'm going there. I'm tempted how do I do that so that I can move towards others around me with more emotional wisdom, kindness, love, thoughtfulness, and awareness? Doesn't that just sound like me? It pains me to read it. Even as I read it, I can feel it going through my... Ugh. I don't. But once I do... It can change everything. How does self-awareness affect not only our relationship with each other, but with God? John Calvin said this. He said, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Again, ew. I mean, it's like stinging. Stop! Without knowledge of self, if I do not know myself, if I'm not self-aware, if I don't have a self-knowledge that leads to an awareness of how my personality affects others, I cannot have a knowledge of God. Why? Because if we lack self-knowledge, we lack the awareness of our profound need for grace from both God and others, everyone 
around us, aka my neighbor, my friends, my colleagues, my spouse, my children, my parents. If you are not deeply aware of your brokenness, your shadow, or as we will explore in the future, your dark side, that brokenness, that shadow, or dark side will work against God's plan of redemption in your life and the world at large through you. And what a tragedy it would be if we go in life from birth to death without knowing why we act the way that we do. Why do I do what I do? Why do I have these habitual, predictable ways of thinking, acting, feeling, and doing without knowing that, without knowing how it actually affects those around me, and not bringing how I think, act, feel, and do into alignment with how God wants me to be in this world as someone created in His image, renewed by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let me say it again, because it was a lot. Mark, this is for you. I could see that you're processing, <clears throat> processing that. Footnote, I say it every couple of years, the minister does see everyone from here. You see the guy, second row from the back there, sleepy? You see, you, you see him, you, you do see. Mark, this is for you. What a tragedy it will be. If we go through life, all the way in life, without knowing why we act the way we do, not knowing how what I do affects those around me, and not bringing how I think, act, feel, and do into alignment with how God wants me to be in this world, in His garden, as someone created in His image, renewed by Jesus, and empowered by His Spirit to live that way. Here is the challenge for all of us. Jeremiah said, not that, but he said this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? This is one of my most hated verses in the Bible. <laughs> the heart is deceitful. I, my heart deceives me. It deceives me as to who I am. It deceives me as to the effect that I'm having on people around me. It deceives me into the contribution that I'm making to this world, either too much or too little, whatever, but my heart is deceitful. So if my heart in, indeed does lie to me, then how do I become more self-aware? What would have been nice is if there was a hatch in my head that I could just peek into, or at least, um, I think our spouse would be willing even without the hatch. <laughs> but we, we, we can ask someone to peek in there and help me see me. Who am I? Why do I act the way that I do, and how does my behavior affect those around me? But unfortunately, we are not built with a hatch that we can just 
open and look at ourselves to get a clear picture of who we are. Our unconscious mind has a way of diverting attention when it starts to look at the hard truths about ourselves. We go into what is called denial. We know it of others. My guess is we have all said it of others. Oh, he, oh, he is so in denial. Oh, she is so in denial about this or about that. I'm never in denial. They, they, they are so in denial. What is denial? Here's another hated statement. <laughs> Refusing to explore what you know about yourself. Where's that cup? <laughs> Refusing to explore. I refuse to explore. So I know it's there. I know it's there. I know what's underlying. If I stop and think, I know it's there. I know there's that something about me. But I'm in denial. I refuse to explore what I know about myself. So when the eye of your mind starts to go to your brokenness, your unconscious or even conscious mind decides to think about something else. Oh, look, there's a bird. Whatever it might be. Or even worse, you focus on someone else's brokenness. I say, oh, let's talk about that. As we so easily deceive ourselves about who we are and why we do what we do and how it impacts those around us, we need somehow a tool that can help us to become more self-aware, that can help us see ourselves, not judge ourselves, just see ourselves more clearly. At some point last year, I cannot even remember when or the year before, I stumbled upon such a tool that is busy helping me and I think can help several of us on our journey towards self-awareness. In order that, why do we want to be more self-aware? There's a means to an end. In order that we can be more fruitful in our relationship with God and others as we build a garden-like community that bears His image into the world. So there is a method behind the madness. Why do I want to be more self-aware? So that I can feel sorry for myself, that I can judge myself, so that I can know why others are judging me? No. I want to be more self-aware so that I can pay attention to it and be more the me that God has created me to be in this world to have the impact that he wants to have throughout our time. This tool is a personality profiling system called the Enneagram. Now, let me be clear off the offset. This tool is just one tool among many. It's not the tool. I find it to be helpful. I think it might be helpful to you. It might not be. But it's just a tool. I'm not going to go into the detail as to who figured this out, but it was figured out, discovered, set into motion, more or less 400 years AD, where someone realized that there is a personality profiling system that teaches that there are basically nine personality types. Nine different types of people. Could there be 10? Could there be 11? Could there be 12? Yes, but for our discussion, we're going to say there is more or less nine. One of which we naturally gravitate to and adopt in childhood to feel safe, to protect ourselves, 
and to navigate the world of relationships that we find ourselves in. Okay? So there are nine different personality types. Again, I'm not married to the nine in any way or manner, but there are more or less nine personality types. And although we all have all nine, there is one of the nine that we in childhood already start to gravitate towards in order to feel safe, to protect ourselves, and to navigate our world of relationships that we find ourselves in. Very importantly, each one of these nine personality types possesses an unconscious motivation that powerfully influences how this type thinks, acts, feels, and do. And it's that motivation that drives why I act the way that I do. My guess is that most of us at some point in our lives have heard of a personality profiling system. There are many of them in existence. So why focus on this one at this time for us as a church? I found that most personality profiling systems tend to focus on what we do. I am driven, so I am a choleric. I'm more easygoing, so I am a phlegmatic. I can feel very deeply, sadly, poetically, so I am melancholy. I'm very outgoing. I love people. I enjoy life around me, and so I am a sanguine. We focus on what we do and who we are, and not so much on why. Why do we do what we do? Yet what you do is most likely not as important as to why you are doing it. Others we can clearly define, maybe I am a choleric. The question is, why? I'm phlegmatic, I'm very easygoing. Why? I feel so deeply about things. Why? Why? What is driving my behavior? And how does God want to utilize the healthy part of my personality that we'll call your superpower towards the end of building his garden-like community. Because he has set inside of us, by birth, by experience, by nature, by all, a specific thing unique to you, a superpower that he wants to use to image him throughout this world. The challenge is that the things that drive us are usually beyond our awareness, somewhere in the background. But, as I said before, if we stop to poke around a bit, we will see that it is there. Let me ask you this question. And my guess is, the more self-aware you are, and maybe the older you are, the more you will say yes to this question. Here's the question. How many times have you find yourself caught in a web of repetition? where you have repeatedly said, done something, or acted in ways that were not in your best interest. And you have done it, said it, or acted that way repeatedly throughout your life. Where you have said, did, acted a particular way, you do it, you know where it's going to go, 
in your marriage. You know where it's going to go with your boss, your friends, your colleagues, whatever. You know where it's going to go, but you repeatedly do it. Even the great apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing this. How many times have I been in a situation with Lisa or someone else where, where I know I should keep quiet? I know it. I hear voices. <laughs> keep quiet, keep quiet. But everything, there's a fight, there is a wrestle that is taking place inside of me against this and then blah. It has never worked out well. If we all just stop for a moment, look in the rearview mirror and reflect, we'll see the wreckage. We'll see the pattern. There is a trail of you doing the very things you don't want to do and not doing the very things that you want to do. And you think, I don't get it. How did that happen? And how is it that it has happened again? It is because in many ways, there is an unconscious motivation that we cannot see that is running beneath our lives, that is driving our behavior. And only once we become more self-aware will you be able to make conscious, different choices and live in the world and your relationship with God and others in a different way. So, why do we act the way we do? What is our underlying motivation that is driving our behavior? And who is it that God is meaning for you to be? And how does he want you to utilize your superpower? That's what we'll start looking at next week. Amen.